Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. One of the cornerstones in ancient Judaism is sacrifice. In ancient Israel and ancient Jewish writings, the issue of sacrifice, animal, grain, incense, and all other different types is something that gets talked about over and over again. We tend to think of it now as something not very interesting or maybe connected to religious practice. But in these ancient communities, it was actually a central component that also became a big part of the literary tradition. What I would really call an explosion of writing about sacrifice, there's dozens of texts from this time period that take up the issue of sacrifice and write about it from all sorts of different perspectives with different ideas about it. Usually these texts have been written with respect to the priestly Pentateuchal literature. This is Leanne Feldman. She is an assistant professor in the Skirball Department of Hebrew and Judaic Studies at New York University. She is also a fellow at the Frankel Institute. Feldman is currently studying texts from the 5th century BCE through the 1st century CE. If you've heard of the Pentateuch, might have heard of the book of Leviticus. It's usually the book that everyone hates because it's completely filled with details about how to perform sacrifice, purity regulations around sacrifice. And most people, when reading the Bible, tend to skip that book. And that's the book that I've spent the most amount of time on. When scholars have been interpreting these texts from the 5th century BCE to the 1st century CE, they're often reading them in light of that Pentateuchal text, in light of Leviticus saying, how are these texts changing Leviticus? How are they updating it? They're assuming that Leviticus is something that's reflecting actual historic practice. Or if it's not reflecting actual historical practice, what it should be, even if it's not actually being carried out quite that way right now. What this implies is that these later texts are indebted to that and have to follow it. This means that there's little room for adjustment. The research that I'm working on now is really challenging that assumption. Scholars who work on the Pentateuch increasingly in the last couple of decades have been able to demonstrate that this text wasn't really widely authoritative or widely known by Jewish communities until probably the Hasmonean period. So we're talking like middle, late second century BCE. So a lot of these texts in you know the fifth century through the early second century could have been written by communities that didn't know, or if they knew it, didn't feel like it was super authoritative. We know that in later Judaism, Pentateuch and Torah become incredibly important. But for a lot of the Second Temple period, that might not have actually been the case. The project that I'm working on now is really to look at a lot of these writings about sacrifice from the Second Temple period, again, without the assumption that they are dependent on the Pentateuch, and to see what kind of ideologies of sacrifice they have, what kinds of different ideas they might represent. Scholars believe that a vast majority of the priestly Pentateuchal writings were written in the First Temple period. That's when ancient Israel was still under a monarchy and prior to the destruction of the Temple and the Babylonian exile. Many scholars have assumed these texts form the basis of the writings of the Second Temple sacrificial texts. 
The second temple period is often said to begin around the fifth century. Usually the thing that marks it in scholarship is this thing known as the Edict of Cyrus, which is a wonderful little story. The actual Edict of Cyrus never really mentions the Jews or Jerusalem or anything about that. But if we read the biblical version of the story, the Persian king Cyrus declares an edict that allows the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem and supports them in their efforts to rebuild the temple, hence a second temple and the name and defining the second temple period. When I'm talking the fifth century, I'm talking about at the start of the period marked by the rebuilding of the second temple, but it's not really a homogenous period. So we have 150 years of Persian rule, give or take, and then the rise of Alexander the Great. And then we have, after the death of Alexander the Great in the late 4th century, we have a few decades of tumultuous battles between his descendants for who gets to rule. And then in the 3rd century BCE, we have Ptolemaic rule over Judea, over where the Jews are living. And then in the 2nd century BCE, we have Seleucid rule over (laughs) Judea, where the Jews are living. And then we have the Maccabean Revolt and Hasmonean rule in the late 2nd century. We can talk about a little bit later the Romans. This time period is really marked by a lot of changes in the governance of the province of Judea. Who's in charge? A lot of uprising, a lot of political battles. A collection of texts discovered in the 1940s has been able to shine a light on this time period, providing details in certain forms that we did not have before. One of these things that came up in the decades following the discovery of these texts, as scholars started to work through them, was the identification of a genre called rewritten Bible. This was first proposed by a scholar named Isabel Mays and has been since followed by a whole lot of people. And the premise is there's these stories, things like Jubilees or the Temple Scroll, that take part of the biblical story and rewrite it and retell it very often with influence of whatever sociopolitical context of the rewriting author, usually with some adaptations, usually with some revisions. And so as the decades went on in studying these scrolls and other literature from ancient Judaism, what could be attributed to the category of rewritten Bible to that genre just became greater and greater. And It began to dominate how scholars have read these texts. So rather than reading Jubilees as a literary text in its own right, it's a question of what does it say about the flood in relation to what Genesis says about the flood? Or how is it what Jubilees says about Mount Sinai different from what Exodus says about Mount Sinai? There's this constant comparison between the two, rather than analyzing a literary work on its own terms. Now, while not all scholars did this, This is a general tendency. Broadly speaking, when it comes to things like law or instructions about sacrifice, it becomes even more amplified because there's this assumption that law or instructions about sacrifice can't be literary, that they're not actually a literary genre, that they're not expressing something literarily. And so really the only reason that ancient authors would engage in them was if there was some procedural reason, if they were prescribing what should be happening or describing what was happening. And so this idea of rewritten Bible or revision became such a prevalent way of looking at 
writings about sacrifice, that it completely dominated the analysis of these writings. One text that Feldman has worked with a lot is called the Aramaic Levi document. This document is from roughly the 3rd century BCE and likely from Judea. But we don't have hard evidence as to who wrote it or where they were living at the time. This text has a lengthy section that scholars have called the Law of the Priesthood, in which the patriarch Isaac gives a long series of detailed instructions about how to perform sacrifice to his grandson Levi. And these instructions mirror the sort of genre that we find in Leviticus of instructions about sacrifice. We only know about four scholars who've looked at the sacrificial materials in the Law of the Priesthood very closely. And all four of them have done a one-to-one comparison of this law and the Aramaic Levi document. Comparing this law to the Pentateuch or this law to Leviticus, the goal was for them to break it down and really find the differences. One of the first things that I did when I was working on getting into this project was to go back to the Aramaic Levi document and to say, if instead of breaking down these laws atomistically, because I should say what's obvious to me, but may may not be uh, self-evident to most people, the, the laws aren't written in the same words. It's a different language, of course, but they're not, you know, a direct translation of Leviticus. They're not um, even really a paraphrase of Leviticus. They're just instructions about how to perform sacrifice. But when we get to the details of it, they're actually pretty different. What's interesting isn't necessarily what exactly those differences are, but rather when viewed as a whole, what's interesting is the ideology being communicated by the sacrificial instructions. Instead of comparing sort of one-to-one laws where we can lose the bigger picture, I came back to Aramaic Levi and said, let's look at the whole. When we look at these sacrificial instructions as a whole, what kind of thing are they communicating? And one of the really interesting things that came out is that God really doesn't like blood. In that text, you have to hide blood from God's sight at almost all costs, which is so different from Leviticus. In Leviticus, blood is everywhere. It's on top of things. It's on curtains. It's on top of the altar, the ground. It's all over and it's really messy. But in Aramaic Levi, you have to hide it. What a stark contrast. It's a different way of thinking about what the sanctuary looks like and how sacrifices are carried out. It also reframes what God's role in sacrifice was and what God might want out of sacrifice. It's fascinating and frustrating, right? These texts never say, God doesn't want to see blood because of X. It doesn't actually really say God doesn't want to see blood. Instead, it says there's these rules about when you butcher the animal, this is how much salt you should apply to it. Well, if you actually look at the measurements, it's a massive amount of salt. (laughs) And what does salt do when you put it on a butchered animal? It dries it out, right? It makes it dry to the touch. That's part of modern kashrut. Also, it takes the blood out of it. There's also a passage that talks about the animal's head and how you can't really salt the animal's head but you still have to put it on the altar. So what are we going to do? We're going to cover it with a layer of fat so that you can't see the blood. And quite literally, it says in the text, so the blood can't be seen. This is a really fascinating parallel to Greek sacrifice, which also covers undesirable parts of the animal with fat. This was so the gods only could see the desirable fats and the things that make it smell good. It never actually tells us why, but 
there's really interesting elements of the narrative part, the thing that comes before the law of the priesthood in Aramaic Levi, that talks a lot about bloodshed, not sacrificial bloodshed, like murder. The Aramaic Levi document starts with a very fragmentary version of the story from Genesis of the rape of Dina and the revenge that Levi and one of his brothers takes on the Shechemites by killing them all. What's interesting about this particular representation is that while it talks about violence, it never actually talks about bloodshed. It never talks about blood. It just does two things. One, Levi has to ask special permission from God in order to commit violence, which is strange because it's something Feldman hasn't observed in any other text so far. And the second is as soon as he does commit this violence, he has to go wash all of his clothes, laundry himself, make sure everything is purified, and the washing is to make his path straight again. The bloodshed is really represented in this text as being something that's not desirable, something that you need special dispensation to carry out, something that God doesn't really like and wants people to sort of stay away from as much as possible, even when it's something they called righteous violence for avenging the rape of one sister. So we have that, and then we have all of this sort of procedural hiding of the blood. It's just an interesting representation of a God who's kind of squeamish about violence, a God who's squeamish about seeing bloodshed, either in a ritual or in a social context. When the Second Temple texts are read through the lens of the Pentateuch, as most of them have been, Specifically, when it comes to things about sacrificial instructions or representations of temple or issues of priesthood, they tend to be read assuming that what the Pentateuch said is taken as a given. So the story that the Pentateuch tells is the story that these other texts must buy into. So that's really important because it's a huge assumption, especially since we know that the Pentateuch wasn't necessarily seen as authoritative by all Jewish communities for a lot of the Second Temple period. So to back up, what's the story that the Pentateuch tells? <laughs> well, the story that the Pentateuch tells as a whole is that there should only be one site where sacrifice takes place. It's the site that God will choose. And there's only one correct way to perform sacrifice at that site. So it's one God, one temple, one correct way of performing sacrifice. This is very commonly seen in Deuteronomy 12, buying into the story of the Pentateuch, what Feldman calls cultic centralization, the cultic practice, the sacrificial worship of the Israelite God Yahweh can only occur at one time in one way. And this really affects how the second temple texts have been read. If we're reading them as rewrite that Pentateuchal text or as buying into the story that the Pentateuch tells, we're assuming that those texts also believe that there's one temple, that there's one proper way to do sacrifice. And when we read these texts that way, they tend to be homogenized. Their differences are ignored or explained away. And the representation of ritual thought, of thinking about how sacrifice works, what it's for, of representations of temple, end up becoming pretty similar in this period. The differences are represented as being relatively minor things. But the truth of the matter is when we recognize that the assumption of the story is of one God, one temple, 
One way of offering sacrifice is actually something that really doesn't take stronghold until later in ancient Judaism, after many of these texts were written. And then, it might have actually been anachronistic to apply that to these earlier texts. So we can read them free of the burden of that assumption, and what they all do is represent sacrifice in startlingly different ways. Jubilees, for example, couldn't possibly be more different than Aramaic Levi, even though so often these two texts are put together as similar The representation of sacrifice and jubilees, it's night and day. So where blood gets hidden in Aramaic Levi, it's all over the place in jubilees. And in fact, in jubilees, God has to be able to see the blood because God decides that human beings are inherently disobedient. They're going to slaughter each other. There's going to be violence. So the best thing that he can do is impose limits and rules on that and use that blood to mark the things that belong to him. So blood becomes something in the book of Jubilees that allows God to see what belongs to him and allows human beings to continually make atonement. So if you shed blood, you have to offer blood at the altar in order to make atonement for that shedding of blood, in order to make atonement also for eating the blood. Those are sort of two major things that are problems in the book of Jubilees, shedding blood and eating blood. Where Aramaic Levi presents This God that doesn't want to see blood, Jubilees presents this God that actually has to see blood and requires it of the people. And we can see Temple Scroll does something even different. The book of Maccabees does something else. Well, there are some similarities between them. Looking at all of these different texts on their own terms as literary works in their own right, rather than as a stream of, you know, rewritten Bible tradition or as sort of part of an assumption of a project of cultic centralization allows us to really recover incredibly diverse ideas about what sacrifice is for, how it works, why somebody might be doing it, what God gets out of it, if anything, and why the cult exists in the first place. And it's just fascinating to see that really from the 5th century BCE, I'm stopping this project at the first century CE, but we could go even further than that if we wanted to. There's no one idea about this. There are actually dozens of ideas about this. And that's really exciting because it means that ancient Judaism was really having vibrant conversations and vibrant discussions about one of its central religious practices. Conversations that took literary form, which is not necessarily how we would expect them to happen. I've been highlighting and pushing the ways in which a modern scholarly assumption of the centrality of Torah has really um, skewed our understanding of these texts. It's also undeniable that a text like Jubilees or a text like the Temple Scroll, these texts did know at least some, if not all of the Torah. There are verbatim quotations. Feldman wants to complicate the idea that just because an ancient author knew another text that they felt indebted to it, or solid as authoritative. Scholars can know texts and make use of and completely change and contradict them in the process of doing so. And that's the B angle that Feldman's presenting in her research. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should assume that just because they know it, just because they're quoting sections of it, that they agree with it, or that they see it as authoritative, 
and have to be careful about how they're adapting it. The warning in this is we have to be careful about assuming because a text might quote Torah or follow some of its narrative forms, that it automatically agrees with it when it comes to issues of ritual. As scholars, we're really, really good at saying the idea of a canon, the idea of a fixed Hebrew Bible isn't something that really existed until the 4th or the 5th century of the Common Era. So certainly nobody in the Second Temple period was working with this idea. So we can say any idea of a 24-book Hebrew Bible in the Second Temple period is anachronistic. We're less good at taking that bigger step and saying, and the stories that the Hebrew Bible tells may also be anachronistic. That is something that is constructed by the people who put those books together. How we arrange these books actually speaks to the different types of theologies that communities hold to the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. They largely contain the same books, but the Old Testament has a few extra just by arranging them differently. It tells a different narrative. We might recognize that those arrangements, particularly lists of books, are anachronistic, but somehow the stories still stick with us. As human beings, we are very persuaded by stories. We are formed and shaped by storytelling, and it's really hard sometimes to step back and acknowledge and recognize the ways that those stories have shaped the way that we're actually approaching our field and the way that those stories might not be actually accurate. One of the most exciting components of this research for Feldman is its impact on Jewish identity in both past and present. It makes Jewish identity, both in antiquity and in modernity, messy. It's not something that can be traced on an evolutionary line, you know, from polytheism to monotheism or from decentralization to centralization. It's not something in terms of ritual practice that is one way or the highway. It's something that's messy. And what I love about this project and what's so exciting about it for me is to really look at the ways in which diversity of thought about something like sacrifice, was just part of the fabric of Jewish life in antiquity. It was okay to be using sacrificial discourse to theorize about things. It was okay to be writing about sacrifice literarily in order to think through the issues of community and identity. Maybe it was to think about who God is or how human beings are supposed to relate to him. These are all things that people use sacrificial discourse to think through. The thing that identifies a Jew in antiquity is that they worship God in the one correct way at the temple in Jerusalem. That's not actually true. That's only true if we decide as scholars that anyone who doesn't do that wasn't Jewish. And it's not clear to me that the people writing these texts in that period would not have considered themselves Jewish. I think in a lot of cases, they would have considered themselves part of an ancient Jewish community. There's a lot more pluralism and diversity going on than scholars have previously given credit for, particularly in the terms of ritual practice. Feldman believes that has implications for today, as well as in terms of diversity of Jewish practice and Jewish life, specifically that it's not something novel to today. It's not something that's an invention of modernity. Diversity in Judaism is something that really goes all the way back. And especially diversity in Jewish religious practice is something that can be traced all the way back. So I think that's one of the things that I find most fun about this project. 
You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Jean and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.